This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In the week following Father's Day and on the cusp of the summer solstice, this week we have a father-daughter story of cultivating place across generations. Robert Hans Inc. Landscape Construction of Boston, Massachusetts holds that a well-stewarded landscape becomes an essential part of one's family. Together in work and life, Bob and his daughter, Catherine, are cultivating a deeper culture of gardening across generations. In his 35-year career, Bob has constructed award-winning gardens and landscapes across the Northeast. He holds a bachelor's degree in landscape architecture from Cornell University and is a registered landscape architect in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Just last year, his daughter, Catherine, joined him in his business. Catherine is also a graduate of Cornell and holds degrees in plant science and business. The two work closely together in both Robert Hans Inc. and a second business, Landscape Collaborative, a high-level horticultural and fine gardening endeavor that cares for many of the gardens they've constructed. The two of them join us today from the studios of WBUR in Boston to talk about legacy, family, and the changing nature of a family-owned business and creating spaces that will last far longer than either of them. Welcome, Bob and Catherine. Thank, Thank you. you, Jennifer. So I I would love to get started with you both describing what you actually do every day. So I've introduced you very basically, but... Sometimes people don't know what that actually means on a day-to-day practical level. So let's start with the elder. And Bob, if you will share with us, what what do you do? Well, I manage a landscape construction company. So we have 30 employees. And what we do is, um, or what I do during the day is I'm in charge of the estimating, the sales, the client contacts, and management of the crews. We um, have a number of people underneath me that run the crews and then the foremen run the jobs themselves. I've gotten to a point where a good part of my day is management and estimating to keep the company going. Um, I do get the occasion to design, to lay out plants in the field, to be in the field and work with the guys, but that's getting a little longer in between when I can do that. And what about on a personal basis? So that very much sounds like your professional relationship to the horticultural world, which is which is great. What about your interaction with plants and your relationship to plants and gardens on a personal basis at this point in your life? Um, eight years ago, we bought a beat-up old farm in Vermont. And this is mm-hmm. kind of my chance to get back into horticulture and to get back into the field. And it's kind of my, it's my experiment. It's my chance to go out and play. So we have, it was a historic garden built in the 1920s. And when we saw it eight years ago, it was in disrepair. So we undertook this this big undertaking. I thought it'd take me 10 years to bring this back together and We're going to be close to making it in 10 years, but uh, like any landscape, it can go on forever, go on for the rest of my life. Um, So this has kind of been um, really my motivation to learn new things, to see new things. And I'm, I'm able to try those out in real life up in Vermont. 
It's always good to know that no matter where we are in our career, we still we still have plenty to learn. And the idea that the garden goes on forever to me is a um, a great form of optimism. <laughs> <laughs> um, Catherine, let's move to you. Tell us about what what do you do, both professionally and personally, with um, plants and gardening and horticultural engagement. So I came into, we bought Landscape Collaborative in April of this year, and I was actually working in New York City at the time. Um, and in July, my dad called me up and said, hey, what are your thoughts on coming to join the family business? Um, so kind of took a leap of faith and joined. And last year, I worked with the crews actually in the field to kind of, to earn respect and to, you know, carry leaves and cut down plants and mow lawns. Um kind of trial by fire. And then this year, I've switched into more sales and estimating. So I'm doing all our new business acquisitions um, for the maintenance side of the company. And then on like a day-to-day basis, I'm doing, you know, spring containers right now. So I'm out in the field. Um, I'm meeting with current customers, talking about their yards and their spaces and what we can do to improve already existing landscapes or to work on how they see their landscapes going forward. Yeah. And then on a personal level, um, oh gosh, oh goodness. I, uh, <laughs> sit, <laughs> I uh, in between work, uh, I sit on the board of Angino Farm, which is a CSA farm that I worked at growing up as a kid. Um, and right now in my career, because I'm so young in it, it's a big process of how do I learn from as many sources as possible? Mm-hmm. So we have a horticulturalist who's got 30 years of experience that I'm learning fr- from. He grew up working in a Fletcher Steel Garden, uh, sound as president of the Rock Garden Society of America. But I'm the more time I have to be in the field with people who know a lot about plants, whether that be my father or um, peers or people who are older than me, the more I'm going to learn just by hands-on and being tactile. Yeah. And do you garden at home on a sort of private sanity basis? <laughs> I would like to. Um, we have a vegetable garden in our yard in Chestnut Hill, but that is my parents' yard that I grew up. Uh, I really got into the ag space before I got into the horticulture space. So the horticulture space is newer to me. But I'm young and live in a rental property, and one day would I like a home that I can garden in? Yes. But for the current time being, uh, I leave that up to my landlord. <laughs> okay. So I'd love to have you both kind of talk to me about your earliest influences that told you that this was a career path you wanted to follow and what led you to be plants people to start with, whether that led you to an office at this point, and it sounds like Bob is getting back into the dirt, which I love to hear. Um, So let's start again with you, Bob. Tell us about what taught you to be a plant person? My mother was one of seven. She had six, six sisters and a brother. And they grew up on the farm, fruit farm in upstate New York. You know, when I was young, my uncle ran the farm. And he had a 1,000 acres of fruit farm. I had, I think, four sets of ants that lived right on the farm itself. Um, we were a little further away. My dad was a doctor and we lived in the city. But... We always would get to the farm, um, sometime pressed into service, especially (laughs) around strawberry season, I guess, when all hands needed to be on deck. Mm -hmm. So 
I grew up seeing agriculture and it just instilled in me that, you know, someday this is what I needed, and, and, you know, and I felt comfortable outside um, with, with, you know, with plants, with, you know, with, with agriculture. As I got a little bit older, I joined the Boy Scouts and we had a phenomenal troop and where most of the scouts stayed and actually through high school, um, which was, I don't think you see that very often. So it was very active. Um, it was something I participated in for seven or eight years. We would camp out once a month, every other month maybe. Uh, in the wintertime, that didn't matter. We'd go to camp in the Adirondack Mountains for two weeks in the summer. Mm. And, you know, through that process, being outdoors, seeing nature, learning about plants and becoming an Eagle Scout, I, it was just something that I've always um, had the opportunity to participate in. Yeah. But what about when you went to school? Um, I went to Cornell, started out as an engineer, thought that would be, well, I soon found out that wasn't the best thing for me. And <laughs> we're really, I was really fortunate that there's two other kids in my dorm that were land, in the landscape architecture department. Um, at that point, I didn't know what landscape architecture was. I didn't know the profession. Yeah. And so I was able to switch within, you know, the beauty of mm, a, you know, a university the size of Cornell is that you can switch from one area of study to the next. And it was the best thing I could have done. Yeah. We'll, we'll go into some of the, the details on that in just a little bit. But first, let's hear from, from you, Catherine. What do you remember about the, the people and places and maybe specific plants that led you to know you would be a plant person or go into this field of study and work? So when I was little, I could always ask, point to a plant and ask my dad what, what it was, what is it? Mm -hmm. um, and he could answer me. And... I think a lot of, when I talk to my peers and I talk to them about what's that plant, they're like, oh, it's a flower. And it's like, no, no, no. He would say, no, that's, you know, um, <laughs> geranium roseanne or something like it, the expression behind the plants, the stories behind the plants started to come out. Um, and I loved being in the garden, um, tinkering with the garden as a kid and actually went into more of the agriculture space. Um, I, I think I worked on a blueberry farm one year and um, as CSA for six years, but being able to teach people about the land and teach people about how things grew was really important to my childhood. Mm -hmm. um, and then I actually went into school on a different path. I think I remember talking to my dad and being like, hey, can I do landscape architecture? And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, you got to figure things out on your own. Like, if you ever want to do this business, you got to build it yourself. And so I said, okay, well, how am I going to do it a little bit differently? And I was like, maybe I'll go into ag policy and looking at local food systems and how we'll think about a local local ag and I came in as a business major thinking that I'd get the education I wanted and I think year and a half in was wanted a more tactile profession I was a little or not profession but education um, I missed being in touch with the land I missed learning by seeing by feeling and so I added plant science and you know they drop you into a six foot soil pit and you have to measure the, you know, soil striations or you're working with the plants in the greenhouse, taking like DNA samples of it. Um, and that connected me back to my love that I felt I kind of got clouded in the business aspect. And I came out of school 
saying, okay, maybe I'll still do ag policy, but I want to understand how do you make this profitable, right? You can have this ideal, but if you can't find economic way to support it, you're never going to grow it. And so I worked in New York City for a year and was taking care of the uh, corporate office's house plants. And I said, hmm, something's missing a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) There's something that, you know, this is great and I'm changing, helping to change the food system. But I was like, where does this stand within plants and how can I get my hands back in the soil? Um, And I actually got a chance, the end of my senior year, my mom and I went to England, saw a bunch of gardens. And we talked to horticulturalists there and they're talking about how being a horticulturalist, that profession is not dying out per se, but there is a sense of lack of curiosity or lack of growth within that industry. And I think it sparked a thought in my head is how do you, how do you revive that and how do you bring that to the U.S. where there hasn't been that historic culture of a gardener? Okay. Just so people are clear on our terms. As a landscape construction business, even though you are a landscape architect, Bob, you are generally approached by a landscape architect who has been hired by either a residential um, client or, you know, Mount Auburn cemetery kind of thing. And they come to you with the landscape architectural plans and say, we would like you to build this. And I think one of the things that I should um, really highlight to listeners who may not be familiar with your work yet is that one of the things you are known for is incredibly beautiful heritage-level stonework that is um, just remarkable. But so clearly you're bent towards engineering earlier in life that then got married to your love of plants and being outside and in landscapes uh, came together really nicely for you in, in this kind of work. Do you ever do your own designs at this point and then become the um, the the construction company for them as well? We do a small portion of that. Um, mm-hmm. We understand in our business model and what it takes to be successful there. So um, there's chances for us to design small gardens, um, chances for us to do something that is very can happen very quickly um, mm-hmm. because our time or my time and is, is best spent installing the work. So, um, but we do appreciate these little breaks or these other, these little opportunities where we can change someone's garden slightly or add a space in their backyard. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of the path that I chose. My background is really, really helpful and I'm respected for it because I can meet with a landscape architect and an owner and know immediately what they're trying to do. So right. the you, you can think of a contractor as an adversary. Um, you know, if you think of perhaps like a public job where it's a low bid situation and as the architect, you know you're going to potentially be fighting with this person to get what you want. We're in a market where um, that's not the case where we're here to help um, the team come up with the best possible um, project that they that you know that can happen. And so when we're when we're looking at stone, I can lend my ideas of what stone 
may work better in this location or what stone's available or what's new or how this could work or how we can change the stone to make it fit. Um, those are things I provide. Um, we look at detailing, we look at grades, we look at viability of plants and all that expertise we lend to the project. Um, so this is, that's where I feel most comfortable and the most productive and, and, and it fits into um, what we're trying to do as a company. Bob and Catherine Hans are a father-daughter. Bob and Catherine Hans are a father-daughter duo at work in the Northeast, building and maintaining gardens and landscapes to last, with business savvy from the past and for the future. We'll be right back with more from this father-daughter conversation. Stay with us. Hey. One of the themes that really resonates with me in this conversation with Bob and Catherine is the idea of mentorship, of apprenticeship, and of practical training, of identifying the people around us or who we'd like to be around because of their experience, their wisdom, and their willingness to share what they know generously. We all have more to learn, and trying to stay open and listen for our own blind spots horticulturally, culturally, emotionally, and socially. That's one of our goals here at Cultivating Place, to expand what it means to garden and what gardening means to us, what it looks like, what it sounds like, and how it changes the world. How one place in time and space, including our own places, are always more than they seem. This is a big theme in my own life right now and has come up a lot in recent episodes and in this month's views letter, my monthly email called A View From Here. This newsletter can include botanical thoughts, information on upcoming events, book or garden reviews, and more. These are often ideas and announcements I've been loving, but I haven't been able to feature on the show. If you love the podcast, I think you'll enjoy the newsletter. Head to cultivatingplace.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. Now, back to our conversation with Bob and Catherine Hans, who teach in both direction, from father to daughter and from daughter to father. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Bob Hans is the founder and principal of Robert Hans, Inc. For 35 years, he's been constructing gardens and landscapes that are intended to last and are often considered family members to their stewards. Last year, his daughter Catherine joined the team, and together the two of them are sharing their journey forward with us today. Now, what year did you graduate from Cornell, Bob? <laughs> uh, I graduated, graduated in 81. And what about you, Catherine? 2017. And one of the things that I, I wonder about and would love your, your kind of observations of is um, a lot has changed in our life between those two years since you were growing up visiting your family farm in upstate New York, Bob, and you, Catherine, were growing up under the mentorship of your own mother and father and coming out of, you know, similar fields of study from the same school in a same region. A lot has changed, and I would love your thoughts on on what do you see as having changed the most, maybe. Um, and maybe let's start with with you, Bob, and then tap into you know, some of the insights Catherine brings. 
I think I'll talk about materials. Um, when I first started out, um, the selection of plants was really limited. Um, yeah. We we had, you know, you, you could buy perennials from white flower farms, perhaps the mail order catalogs, um, and there were there weren't many choices there. And then in the in the eighties, there's an explosion of um, plants of you know, perennials of every type, and this was really exciting. Um, and we've all, you know, we've learned from it. I, I think, or when I first started, um, and I'm going to mention this, we, we had a couple people that are very influential to me, and I think most of them were horticulturalists. Um, and why they're so great is because a horticulturalist, every person, I, every horticulturist that I've known is very giving. Um, they're giving of their time, they're giving of um, their expertise. And I don't find that in, you know, in the world as much as one would hope. But if you get into the horticulture community, it's, it, it's amazingly, it's amazingly good. So um, <laughs> I kind of got off the point there, but I really wanted to stress that fact and we can use it some other place. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Besides plants, um, materials have changed. Um, stone, you know, reclaimed stone wasn't a thing that we really thought about, you know, 20 years ago. And tools, machinery, and how fast and efficient some machines have become that allows you to do something much quicker. And then, obviously, the computers and technology. Um, yeah. I'm a dinosaur. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, everyone knows that, you know, everyone knows that who knows me. I, I still draw by hand. I estimate and print all my cost estimates. And um, there's landscape architectural offices will kind of laugh when one of my estimates come in and chuckles. Oh, we know who this is because no one else is doing <laughs> it that way. Um, and I apologize. That's why my daughter... Coming into the the firm is is is, is going to catch you know help me catch up to where I may need to be. But there, certainly, I would guess there are um, great benefits to both both ways. So, <laughs> Catherine, as you as you are entering the field and learning under both elder influences and new technologies and new approaches. What strikes you about how things have changed and some of the areas that you see yourself and, and your generation really trying to hold on to and move forward with? Mm. I think in my education or starting in my education, it was interesting because I got a viewpoint from business and plant science, but all my plant science friends, when you ask them, what do you want to do when you grow up? They said, oh, I want to grow the next best strain of medical marijuana. And that, <laughs> and that was what they told you. And I was like, okay, cool, rock on. Um, and I think what's what I've seen and what's interesting now is back when my dad was saying in the 80s that the plant portfolio was really small and constrained and there was – trees and lawns and that's what a garden was and then became trees shrubs and lawns and then trees shrubs perennials lawns and we we grew that envelope and now we're looking at as we actually grow our you know from plug business going to 
um, growing plants for Lowe's and Home Depot, actually the, you know, the envelope's shrinking down a little bit and you have to, to find rare plants or to find one-offs. You have to really know people or go back to the seed. So the plants for mass market now, when you look at them, you know, maybe the mass market wants purples and blues and, you know, the Coreopsis breeders are crossing off all the oranges and reds and rust colored because that's not what will sell at Home Depot. So there's that trend that's happening in the industry right now and that change. And and then on the landscape architecture side, you get designs that, you know, my dad, I think, grew up with more English gardens and room gardens and, you know, perennial borders. And then, you know, modern architecture or landscape architecture, you can say, is clean lines and a very limited plant portfolio. And then you get the, maybe the pied duf, you know, I mean, uh, matrix planting, and maybe that's where we're heading towards. But there's a lot of changes in plant knowledge and access to plants that are happening right now. But I think, you know, there's a lot of technology within this industry too. And I think that's important to note that our ability to grow things at mass scale is so much more than it used to be in distribution. So when uh, I want to go back to your noting of the horticultural offerings, um, especially in the mass market, uh, once again contracting and being controlled by some very major suppliers. Um, so I have a couple of questions to ask you about that. Is The first one is how do you feel about that as a you know, a plants woman in this world and who is working, I am presuming, with people who want a special garden. They they don't want a Home Depot landscape. They want a specialty, perennial, native, edible, mixed environment of interesting and appropriate trees and shrubs and um, vines. They want something that is sophisticated and nuanced. So how do, how do you feel about that contraction in horticultural propagation and promotion? And, and how do you then respond as a business person and a plants person yourselves? So I think a, a lot of it is education. Um, I think a lot of our clients want something different than their neighbors, but they don't really, their knowledge of plants or their their awareness of it, they don't know what that means. They just want it to be mm-hmm. different or beautiful or, you know, maybe they say cut flowers or they say, nat- you know, native plants and there's, you know, drought resistant. They may have these buzzwords, but a lot of it begins with a conversation and talking about, you know, what you can do with the garden when you bring dahlias in or lilies or weird variety of echinops and stuff. And our access to plants on the mass market is incredible. Like at Home Depot and Lowe's, when I was growing up, and I think before and when my dad was too, there's there wasn't plants, you know. We, there's hellebores at Whole Foods. And back when I was younger, there was, there, you could never get that there. So I think people are seeing more plants maybe than they historically have. Um, but they're also looking for something new. And I think that hunger and curiosity is there. But being on the other side to provide that education, I think, is really important to make space in the market for different varieties of plants that maybe aren't evident when you go to a nursery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm going to jump in here. And, yeah. Yes, please. And, and yeah. um, come at it from 
a totally different point. I, I, I think Catherine's point that, you know, the Lowe's and the Home Depot, that's what's offered to a typical person that's shopping there. As a business, we can find any plant that you want us to find or any plant that you specify. So we have a reach, um, you know, trees that we use on jobs. Um, we go down, you know, we're, we're from Massachusetts, Maine, down to New Jersey, out to Ohio. So we're bringing in trees from the Midwest, um, the, you know, New England and the Mid-Atlantic. Um, same with shrubs. And now with having a horticulturist on our staff, um, who happens to own a greenhouse, we have a chance to bring in seeds or, and, nice. and, and start plants. Um, so, you know, last year we did a sweet peas, you know, we had 50 varieties of sweet peas that Matt was trying out for us. He started them all in this greenhouse and then he was made them available to us to, you know, to put on jobs. And, you know, as I developed my gardens, we we're talking, you know, delphiniums, he says, oh, the very best delphinium seeds come from Germany. And this is where you have to buy them from. And this is what you have to do. And it's like, so if you have the interest in the bent, you can find any plant you want to. So this brings up a question. I mean, I think what this is bringing up for me is the concept of horticultural literacy, which um, I graduated from college very close to when Bob did. And of course, Home Depot and Lowe's didn't even exist, nor did Whole Foods. And so the concept of horticultural literacy and how it ebbs and flows in our society, I think is an important concept here. And one of the things I see your work on both construction and install and conversations with clients, as well as the horticultural care that goes on afterwards with Landscape Collaborative, part of what you're doing is helping people to level up and um, and expand their horticultural literacy, whether or not they become diehard gardeners or not is not the point. And they might. They might be completely lit up by what you have done with their home gardens and um, and the spark might be lit. The, the other thing that I see here is that connection you just walked us through, Bob, of your ability to say, if you want a magnolia denudata, I will find you one. <laughs> I know the I know the guy. Right. Um, as opposed to whatever other, you know, like I want a tree. And so that connection seems to me really critically important at this point in our lives because so much is being funneled into these large um you know, from seed right up to plant propagation, we are being constrained and constrained and constrained. And so a, a, a business person, plants person like yourself who maintains these contacts with people who have this access to horticultural diversity and passion seems so important because you probably are in large part what helps keep them alive as little businesses themselves. And if we lose that connection – I worry. I worry about us horticulturally. What What are your thoughts on both of those concepts, Bob? Let's start with you, and and then get Catherine's um, insights coming up. I, I'm a promoter of small business. Um, we are a small business ourselves. Whenever I can buy plants from a local nursery, buy plants from a plants person, buy plants from someone that's 
actually um, propagating them and knows way more about the plants than I do. That's who I prefer to to go to. Yeah. Um, you know, it's what I grew up with. I grew up, as I said, in upstate New York, and the big employer was Eastman Kodak. And Kodak took care of people, <laughs> you know, up until a number of years ago. But And that's what my business does is we take care of the people that work for us, you know. And mm -hmm. that's what small nurseries do, small, small horticulture people do. They're very, you know, there's a sense of loyalty and a sense of um, longevity that we want to achieve. And we're missing that in big business. So, Catherine, when you think about these concepts of both, you know, kind of horticultural connectivity across uh, specialist growers and plant people, and you think about horticultural literacy, you've mentioned a couple of things already. One is this idea of changing food systems, which is an important thread in our cultural conversation right now. And then you also mentioned you know, developing the new best strain of medical marijuana, which is, you know, clearly a very um, exciting horticultural aspect in our world right now. Um, you know, I think it's a nightmare for some people <laughs> and, and communities, but it's a it's it's there and and it's it's not going to go away. What do you see your generation? How do you see them feeling differently or engaging differently with landscapes and plants beyond those two sectors? Mm, interesting question. What I've seen in my generation, and a lot of my peers are graduated college and moved to big cities. And you're in a confined space with, you know, less and less room. And you see a push towards indoor houseplants or, you know, outdoor parks. And, you know, bringing a bottle of wine to Central Park and drinking. And that's, you know, I mean, that's my friend's sense of fun or hiking outdoors and getting up into the White Mountains. I think the trends, my dad and I will go back and forth over this a little bit, whether or not, you know, people used to mow their own lawns, but now not many people do because they don't have that much free time. But people are having to make a decisive effort to be outside and not be watching TV or, you know, being online. But the people I've gravitated around, at least in my friends and the people that I I'm attracted to are the people who say, I need to be outside, I need to be exploring, I need to be, you know, wandering somewhere in the wilderness. Um, so I think with every revolution, there's always a counter-revolution. Thinking mm -hmm. back to, you know, industrial revolution in England, you have, you know, the arts and crafts movement coming out of it. Or, you know, even this industry, horticulture, is a 150-year-old industry. It's not, it. it's been around, but I think, home gardeners doing, you know, planting things and making their own gardens and working with their land in a gardening aspect versus an agriculture aspect is a newer concept. But my classmates or my peers are really grappling with the idea of how do you find that outdoors in a society that can be so consumed with technology. Mm -hmm. And technology can help us, you know, to hydroponics and growing new things or, you know, plants, agriculture and farms as the epicenter for the newest technology, honestly. Um, but I think there's a certain like existential crisis that my peers 
deal with sometimes, or I hope they deal with. Maybe that's it. <laughs> yes, I think it's out there, definitely, for, for sadly, all of us. In the week following Father's Day, we're speaking today with Bob and Catherine Hans, a horticultural father-daughter duo sharing their plant work journey story with us. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. So thinking out loud here, family, mothers, fathers, siblings, cousins, I'm one of those people from a pretty tightly knit extended family, for better or worse. Both my mother and my father were and are strong characters, loving and smart, talented and hardworking in their individual ways. If it was my mother who grew me into the gardener I am, it was my father, a wildlife biologist, who made me into the nature lover I am. It was outside among plants, trees, animals, rivers, mountains, and starry skies that my parents were at their lightest and most expansive. While no one articulated the other-than-human lives around us as family members, it was demonstrated over and over in the way my parents cared for the other-than-human, and in the way they demanded that same sense of responsibility and care from their girls. To see my father read a river while surveying for aquatic life and health, or while fly fishing, to watch him mimic for me, with his hard-working hands, the particular way in which ducks and geese set their wings before landing in a field or on open water, was to know the place these other lives held in his life and heart. Family can be tricky, challenging, frustrating, and heartbreaking. No two ways about it. But especially in this wider view of who is family in our days and lives, makes them also supremely rewarding in their constancy, in knowing and loving these family members back the best we can, we become much more fully ourselves. Now, back to our conversation with Bob and Catherine Hans, in honor of Father's Day, which took place last week, and in honor of the very idea of who our family to each of us. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back with Catherine and Bob Hans, daughter and father and business associates. In our ongoing conversation, we're talking about how to cultivate a culture of caring for gardens, how to deepen horticultural literacy, and how to strike a dynamic balance between a love of plants and design and a good and sustainable business model. I want to move around to the landscape and garden that you are restoring in Vermont and sort of tie that into this idea of a landscape being a meaningful part of one's family, just like a father and a daughter. I, I think there's some – I'll start with some background on the property we bought. Um, so we bought a – I guess you would call it a hillside farm in Vermont. Um, nothing's flat. We're, we're, you know, up up there. And back in the 1920s, um, the owner at the time built a, an Italianate garden where you actually terrace the hillside. And it's, there's three or four different levels as you step down. And those were very, um, they were perennial 
and you know the perennial gardens, and we also ended up with an amphitheater, um, you know, a stone amphitheater <laughs> where you know he took his horses and oxen and pulled stone off of every farm that uh, <laughs> probably within a quarter mile radius. He, he actually owned 2,000 acres of land by the time he got done and employed 60 people in you know a small little town in Vermont. So essentially you employed everyone. Um, and so this is a garden that we saw eight years ago and there was, you know, it was totally falling apart. Um, the property, the house was totally falling apart, the outbuildings in the barn. So we, it was a big, big, big undertaking, but it's it's been a phenomenal process to go through that. Um, and so the whole family is involved. <laughs> you, you know, they're, they're involved in the discussions. Um, they're involved in the work. They're involved in how this is going to get done. And so we put you know, a heart and soul into a property. And we, we've done that as a family because um, we, the whole family thinks alike. Um, my wife and I, um, we can look at one thing and we come to the same conclusion or when it comes to landscape, when it comes to houses, when it comes to renovation, we're all on the same page. So we've taken um, the main house, which is an 1815 federal brick house, um, and we just restored it. You could stand in the basement and look up and see the sky at one point. So there was nothing in between. We, we essentially tore it down, left the brick, and we put new foundations in the basement and built the house within the house. And so after 200 years, we've made a house that hopefully will last the next 200 years. And the landscape that's 100 years old, we, we, we've We've been working on stone walls for seven years up there, and um, we've learned more up there. My my stonework up there holds together better than my stonework in Massachusetts, even though the frost is deeper, the winters are colder. So we found ways to um, do proper under drainage. We found ways to um, setting methods that actually work better than what is a standard detail down here. So now we're bringing what we learned <laughs> learned in Vermont and bringing it down to Massachusetts for the, you know, for the projects they're working on here. Um, just going to throw in too is the big learning experience is my plant material. So I've went from a zone five, um, you know, zone five where I could plant a whole bunch of things to zone four. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge and also um, deer up there. So I've, I have to figure out my palette of plants. I have to figure out what I can grow in order to create these gardens that we're working on up there. So mm -hmm. I might have rambled a little bit here. <laughs> no, no, no. The, so, so Catherine, step in a little bit. How are you involved with the property in Vermont? And how do you, especially I think in, in hindsight, thinking about what you said about growing up in the vegetable garden in um, Massachusetts with your parents, uh, what is your role in the Vermont Garden, and how do you see it as becoming sort of another family member? So I think when we look at Vermont, I know a couple of years ago we said uh, we dug up a 300 by 100 yard uh, <laughs> uh, sectional land and said, okay, we're going to make a vegetable garden. We're going to try to see how many vegetables we can grow. Um, so that was fun, and that was happening while I was in college. So it was kind of talking on the phone to my dad, um, 
through those times to be like, okay, when do you need me to come plant? And when, how are we going to do this and how are we going to make it work? And then as I went through college, there was this idea that I, we are building this house to last 200 years and these gardens to last as long as they can, rock walls that won't fall apart over time. And how can I keep this farm going for, for myself, for my children, children's children? I think that's something that resonates with this property, both because it's a history and how we've restored it, but also the quality and craftsmanship that we've put into it. Um, so I know last year we did cut flowers and said, okay, we're going to take that 300 by 100 stretch and we're going to do all cut flowers. And I think we definitely bit off more than we could chew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the weeds were taller than me and I made a lot of bouquets out of weeds. Um, but there, I think it taught us, okay, now we'll, can we look at the gardens and can we walk around the gardens and pick flowers from the gardens? Can every garden be a cutting garden in essence? Um, so we learned that, but it's a big question in my mind of this space there's something about Vermont there's something about our neighbor when he stands on his hill can look over and say you know this is where my property is my daughter's property my father lived there my great-grandfather lived there and he can wind down the valley and see his legacy or see his heritage and where he's moving where his family's moving towards um I think that's something really special about the place and something that I will toy with and, you know, hope to spread forth. Um, but it's, there's always a question of viability and making sure we can keep it and continue to play, right? So you bring up this idea of legacy, which I think is a really important one. And, and part of me listening to you thinks maybe just that intention of holding legacy as an important element thinking about how do i how do i take care of this for 200 years really taps into a, a lot of land based people's philosophies and stewardship principles which is you make decisions for you know just by one way of example the native american concept of making decisions for seven generations in front of you not for yourself and you know, I, I think a lot of what we've gotten to in this conversation really illustrates how much we all learn, not only from each other and at the knees of our elders or our peers and even in practice by our own errors, but how much we learn from the land itself. And I'm pretty sure Vermont's going to be so excited to hear how much they just taught Massachusetts <laughs> in terms of stonework. I think they're going to like that. Um but I'd love to, you know, I'd love to circle back around to the idea of legacy and heritage and Father's Day and family. And I'd like to ask you, Catherine, you know, as we head into this Father's Day and with this kind of intention that I've pulled out of your out of your words of you know, thinking about how you care for the land like a family member for as far in the future as you can. Are there things you'd like to share with your dad about his many sort of gifts to you around not only gardening and landscape and legacy, but about maybe even even 
business model and integrity as we head into this Father's Day? Hmm. Um, loaded, but yes. Uh, <laughs> I think when I was in New York, and I was having a gay old time in New York, but uh, my dad called me up on the phone, and I'd always been told that if I wanted to be in this business, I'd have to make it for myself. You start from scratch, you find your own guys, you you know, build your own business. And my dad asked me, do you, do you want to come on board? Um, and I knew that it was a sacrifice in a sense, or not a sacrifice, but that I'd, you give up things for other things, the risk reward. And um, there was, a, I think how I thought about it in terms of legacy was like, what do I want to teach my children? And what do I want them to see in their parent um, as they grow up? And being a young child and being able to ask my dad, what's that? What's this? Um, it That was something that was, I, de- I desire to have and I desire to bring to people, to my family, to, you know, the clients I interact with. Um, and I knew that by joining the company, it would, it would make my father very proud. It would be, you know, the business that he built and the guys and the crew, um, crew members that are so important to our family who helped to raise me. It would be, you know, a continuation of their work going forward and continuation of my father's work going forward. And that it would be, and it would be mine too. Um, and I think there's a beauty to being able to, like, what's Thoreau's? There's, you, you need beauty as well as bread. Um, <laughs> but if I, if I could build things, gen- generic things that ma- made the world a little bit more beautiful then I was on the right path. And I think can't, I think my dad taught me that and my parents taught me that. And I hope to bring it forward and push it forward. Hmm. And Bob, what about you to Catherine in terms of being a father and seeing her move into this world? Well, we've always tried to or to have our children make decisions on their own and have them be happy with those decisions. So um, Catherine, um, as we mentioned, is, you know, I called her and said, can you help me here with the companies that I own? And she was, she would walk around New York City between restaurants and um, probably talk to us every day. Well, after I asked her that question, she didn't talk to us for a week. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I didn't know what was going to happen at all. And finally she called and she says, yes, we'll do it. And, you know, that your heart stops, you know, because that's like, this is wonderful. But then I had this little tinge, you know, that said, I'm changing her life. Um, and that's a m- really important decision. Um, I, I don't want to be wrong here and I don't want her to be wrong. So... As proud as I was and as excited as I was that we could continue this, I had this little feeling that it better work out because, you know, it's <laughs> it's important that, you know, my children and my family are happy. Bob, when you think about your children and these moments with them and you think about your relationship to land and caring for the lands that you've cared for, do you see how 
your work might have taught them some of their greatest lessons in life in any way? They're just like me. <laughs> they, no, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Catherine and I, we walk the same. We have the same hand gestures. We, <laughs> we think the same. And, you know, everything that was important to me about, you know, my idea of owning property and maintaining property and keeping property, she automatically has that too. Was it taught through osmosis, um, you know, through um, example, but it wasn't, it wasn't a schooling to her. She picked that up, being around myself, being around my wife, and being around our friends. It's a wonderful thing to have dinner with the family every single night, <laughs> every single day of the year. Um, you know, we stress that, and that's, you know, that, that, that's how we come together, and um, that's how we turned out the way we did. Thank you both very much for being guests on the program today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. And you too, Yeah, thank you. Robert Hans and his daughter Catherine are a father-daughter duo in the Northeast working together to create and care for gardens and garden relationships that will last for generations to come. In the week following Father's Day, they join us to talk about the changing nature of horticultural business models and the lasting legacy of family, a concept of which for them includes the landscapes and plants that companion us. On this day before the summer solstice and our full immersion into the summer season of light and long days, and I hope a little more play, it's nice to remember that we're all in this together as family. From the trees that offer us shade and breath to food we prepare and eat and which literally helps to build and sustain us, we are all connected. Join us again next week when we dive into the making of gardens that feed us more deeply in our first episode of summer. We'll be speaking with Lori Kranz of Edible Gardens LA about her work in which she firmly believes and demonstrates all over urban Los Angeles that a garden can be anywhere. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from Robert Hans, Inc. and Landscape Collaborative, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our producer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.